Welcome to World's Away, an actual play storytelling podcast. My name is John Ossip, and with me today are Haley Daria. Hello. Lauren Wilbanks. Hot damn. Michael Morales. Hi. And Moshe Tara. Salutations, fellow travelers. Oh, yeah. All right. So uh, today we are recording our first ever episode. Um, so I just want to start off by saying that I am uh, really, really excited to be here. I think I started first talking with folks about making a podcast a couple of years ago uh, when we were in the middle of our first role playing game together. And we have been uh, working on this in earnest for over a year now. So, yeah, this is just really exciting to kick this thing off um, and super glad to have you folks at home listening today. Yay! It's happening. Oh, yeah. It's happening. Um, yeah. So our first season is going to be a, uh, a kind of science fiction setting, which we have decided to name Convergence. Um, the story takes place in the late 23rd century um, and follows four members of what's called the Minerva Project, which is a mission sent off to the edge of humanity's presence in space. So we're going to have a lot of adventure uh, and also some politics and intrigue. Uh, now, I mentioned that this is our first episode, but you can really think of this as the kind of setup episode or episode zero. Um, so rather than jumping straight into the story and starting with Impulse Drive, uh, which is the game that we will all be playing, um, instead, we're going to talk about what to expect for this season uh, and also also introduce you to each of the main characters. Now, if you really want to jump straight into the story, you can uh, skip ahead to episode one, which is on the feed right now. But uh, we have a lot of good stuff planned for this episode about the world of Convergence, uh, about the game that we'll be playing, and the uh, four awesome characters that are going to be uh, that we'll be following for this season. So if any of that sounds interesting, you should definitely stick around. So before getting into anything uh, else, we should probably explain what Worlds Away is. As I said at the top, we are an actual play storytelling podcast where we'll use games to help us create some exciting, dramatic, and heartfelt adventures with you. So. I'm guessing there's at least one person listening who's never actually played a tabletop game before. Uh, do you want to break down how that works, uh, you know, just in a little more detail uh, and explain what an actual play is from from that perspective? Or maybe just give an example of shows that people may have heard of without realizing that they're an actual play? Yeah. So if you've listened to shows like Adventure Zone or, or Friends at the Table, or if you've watched things like Critical Role or Dimension 20... Uh, you probably have a pretty good idea what you're getting into here. All of those are actual play shows. But if this is your first actual play, first off, we are honored. But uh, an actual play is a show where we use role-playing games. So it's games like Dungeons & Dragons or Apocalypse World uh, to collectively tell stories. All of these games are kind of based around playing characters within a story um, and then describing situations that those characters face and, and how they react. Sometimes it's unclear whether what a character wants to do will succeed or fail. And so role-playing games use dice or other tools to decide what happens. Uh, and then we all have to react to that in real time. Uh, so for the first season of the show, Mo, Haley, Mike, and Lauren are going to be playing the main characters, which we'll introduce uh, a little bit later today. Um, and I'll be the game master, which means that I am responsible for describing the world. Um, so kind of like a narrator. Uh, but I also play the other characters that our heroes uh, will interact with throughout the story. Each season of the show, we'll play some uh, some kind of role-playing game. And in future seasons, we might have different GMs or play different games with different settings. Uh, so I mentioned that this first season is a, a sci-fi campaign, but another season might be a fantasy story or maybe a Western 
uh, or something like Stranger Things, who knows. But uh, for our first season, we're going to be playing a game called Impulse Drive, uh, which was written by Adrian Toon. Impulse Drive is what's called a Powered by the Apocalypse game, which just means that it uses mechanics designed by D. Vincent Baker for a game called Apocalypse World. Um, but as we go through the game today, if you like what you're hearing and you want to check it out for yourself, definitely grab a copy. Um, it's available in, in PDF or in print online. I think the PDF's like 15 bucks and the, the paperback is just around 20. Yeah, and the paperback and the hard copy are just really sick. We have them at home and it makes an excellent uh, decoration for your coffee table. Yeah, yeah if you want to flex your nerd creds, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I also have the paperback and it's pretty dope. Uh, cool. So yeah, Impulse Drive, I mentioned it's a PBTA game, um, and this one's designed for sort of sci-fi space opera settings, which matches the the genre we're exploring for our first season. So if you've played games like D&D that use 20-sided dice or other games like that with a lot of dice rolling or stats, Powered by the Apocalypse games are a little bit different. Uh, they're kind of lighter on the rules, which I'm really excited about uh, for the podcast and just to keep the story moving. And also, the, the only equipment that you need to play is just two uh, kind of regular six-sided dice. So, like, dice from, uh, you know, Monopoly or... Um, Catan. Any other kind of... Catan, any other kind of board game like that. Um, so, generally speaking, when we're playing Impulse Drive, as the GM, um, which Impulse Drive actually calls the Space Master, which I'm, I'm super excited about, personally. Not Game Daddy. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mo. Um, I will uh, narrate a scene and describe what is going on in the world, and then each of the players uh, will kind of tell me how their characters respond to that situation. Um, typically, each player just says what their character does, and that will just happen in the fiction. They just do that thing that they say. But sometimes it's not clear that what a character wants to do is actually going to work, and that is when the dice come in. Uh, so when that happens, I will tell them to go ahead and roll those six-sided dice, and then there are three possible outcomes. Uh, so on a, a 10 or higher, that, that's kind of the best-case scenario. Um, they do what they want. It looks really cool. Uh, I'm really excited for them. It's just, you know, all around great. It's badass. It is badass. Um, on a 7 to 9, which is kind of the next rung down on the ladder, that's still kind of good, I mean, but it, it's not a 10+, plus, right? Um, so we call that a mixed success. You succeed at what you were trying to do. But first off, it does not look cool. Um, so I just want to uh, make that clear for everyone right now. But also there might be a kind of unexpected consequence or, or you don't get everything that you wanted. Uh, so that, that's what makes it a kind of a mixed success. Um, okay, so now we've talked about 10 plus and we talked about seven to nine. And then that leaves six or less. And that, my friends, we call a big old fail. Now, Failing an impulse drive isn't all that bad because whenever you fail, you also get an experience point, Woo. which you can kind of use to make your character better and maybe not mess up so much next time. But uh, we'll when see. You, yeah, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, <laughs> past performance, uh, you know, suggests otherwise, but we'll see. Um, when you roll a six or less, however, I also get to do what impulse drive calls a, a hard call. Which just means that I, as the GM, get to describe exactly how shitty things get for you based on whatever's going on in the fiction. Uh, so so that <laughs> that's kind of what happens when you roll a six or less. So for people like me who have only, you know, we're, we're huge nerds, we've played D&D, but uh, not huge enough nerds to have played other tabletop games uh, like this one. <laughs> so not, not, uh, not huge nerds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess we're if we're like a medium nerd and we've played D&D, &D, but we haven't played Apocalypse World and 
you know, I would be used to just failing, meaning that you don't do the thing and you maybe you lose your turn um, and you definitely look stupid. But this feels a little bit different than that. Yeah, I mean, you, I'm, no promises that you that it won't also look stupid here. But one of the like, I think two things to kind of break down for that. One is that players don't really take turns in PBTA games like Impulse Drive. It's just kind of like, okay, if you have something that your character wants to do, you just get to go ahead and do it in that situation. You know, when it's a, a kind of tense situation, I'll try to manage the action a bit to to make sure we're jumping in between folks and that it's not just one person doing everything. But the game is not really like turn based. It's not based on tactics or combat. Everything that we do is more narratively focused. And, and then second, I, and this is something I really love about PBTA games in particular, but failing a role doesn't like stop the action. It, um, you don't like lose your turn or anything. It, it just helps explain what happens next. So whether it's good or bad, like something is going to happen in the story that that pushes the plot forward and uh, impacts your character in some way. And, and I'll just say, like, you know, I, I've uh, played D&D in the past, and and this is something that um, having sort of uh, as preparing to DM or to GM, excuse me, this campaign, this is something that if I run a D&D game in the future, um, I'm going to really try to incorporate there as well, because um, I just think it makes like failing roles more interesting um, for everyone instead of saying, OK, you don't get to do something and then just moving on to the next player. So like, how do things like skill contests work? Do NPCs have stats that you roll for? Yeah, so I mean, and I think this is another thing that sets PBTA games apart from other RPGs. Um, but as so, I'm I'm the space master, the GM, right? And I I just pretty much never roll dice. So there aren't normally things like skill contests where you'd say, oh, like character A rolls dice and character B rolls dice, and then you compare those two numbers. Um, as the player, you just roll the dice, and then that determines what happens narratively, right? Either it being you know good, bad, or somewhere in between, um, and then we we just narrate that outcome. Um, that's not me saying that we'll never do anything like that. I'm kind of reserving my rights on that. But if we do, um, you know, if, if I'm rolling dice, that's kind of a special circumstance where we're doing something outside of the rule book. Hmm. Um, okay. So one other thing about dice I should mention, when you roll, there are also bonuses that you can add or subtract to the number on the dice. And those are kind of based on how good or bad your character is at different ways to tackle a problem. Um, so these are like the main stats in the game, um, which Impulse Drive calls approaches. So when you're making your character, you can assign each approach a modifier that's somewhere between positive two and negative one. Uh, and then that number gets added to the rules that you make whenever the approach applies. And do you want to go into those approaches really quick? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, let me do that. Um, so there, um, let me pull it up, actually. But there are five approaches in Impulse Drive. The first one is volatile, which is kind of the like Taco Bell Diablo sauce of uh, Impulse Drive. So just whenever you're acting spicy, you do volatile. Um, the first so, of yeah, many Taco Bell references are dear listeners. Yeah, yeah. We're, we are we are a big Taco Bell podcast. I'll just sort of flag that right now. But we are, uh, volatile we are not applies sponsored, but not <laughs> legally not a yeah. Taco Bell podcast. But our DMs are open. We're not not sponsored. Right. That's a good point. Taco Bell's not denied us yet. Um, but yeah, so vol <laughs> volatile applies whenever you are like you're fighting with someone else or you're acting recklessly. Uh, but but it also works when you're like intimidating another character, just getting up in someone's face. That That's what volatile is. So the second stat is calculating, which I would describe as kind of the opposite of volatile. 
Um, so this is when you like take your time and really plan out a situation or if you're getting the drop on someone or, you know, it's just really being methodical. Uh, the third approach is slick, um, which if you just picture Han Solo, that's pretty much all you need to know about slick. Uh, it's sort of like fast flying, fast talking, acting quick. Um, yeah, so slick works for both getting out of harm's way, but also for manipulating people um, and just kind of being smooth. So, yeah, the fourth approach is stalwart, which is all about toughness. Um, so stalwart lets you kind of resist injuries um, or hardship. And it also lets you help out or support other members of the crew. Um, so sort of like being a pillar for them. And then, uh, yeah, so that's stalwart. And that brings us to our last approach, which is called alien, which essentially alien is just for the really weird shit in the game. Um, it describes how you handle stuff that is impossible to understand. There's like dark visions, Jedi mind tricks, all that stuff is is alien. So I know I've interrupted a lot in this section. This is my last one, I promise. But uh, they're like the really cool moves that the other characters can do with those um, approaches and stats, right? Can you just really quickly talk about that? Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm not going to get into a ton of this today, but when you're figuring out which approach to use, there, uh, we look to a list of moves. Um, so Impulse Drive, ha- ha- Impulse Drive excuse me, has these written out. And the moves describe things that every character can do. So if you like pick a fight with someone or you start shooting at them, there's a move for that that's called firefight. Or if you like stop to investigate something, there's a move called scope it out for that. But really just the moves describe how certain situations unfold in the game. Yeah, like the moves are just going to come up naturally as we play. Uh, but as players, like one thing to keep in mind is like, we don't want to just say which move that we use. So if you say something like, oh, I use Intimidate or I'm going to share expertise, both of which are are moves in Impulse Drive, I'm just going to turn that around on you and say, okay, like, what is your character doing in the fiction? If you're intimidating someone, you need to tell me like how physically you are doing that. Instead, like, let's say you said, okay, I pull out my scanner and I start taking readings from this rock formation. I'll, I'll say, okay, then go ahead and roll scope it out because that's kind of what your action has described. And then we're going to see what happens. I I think this jumped out to me when I was first kind of learning about impulse drive and kind of understanding it. And I think that this is really cool because this is going to help us think more about like actually, you know, playing, you know, the role play of it, help us like fill out the world and just make it feel more real rather than just kind of strategizing and like, you know, um, thinking more mechanically. Yeah, I I think it kind of ties into the whole like everything is narrative focused and and uh, doing, you know, what your what your actions are in the game. They're not like moves that are kind of scoring you points. It's just kind of describing what happens in the in the fiction. Yeah. Um, OK, w- one one more thing on, on moves I should mention is that each character also has an archetype, which is kind of similar to a character class in other RPGs. Uh, so, for example, there's an archetype that's called the Hound. Um, which is kind of a, a tracker or a bounty hunter. There's also the infiltrator, which is a, a thief or a spy. So Impulse Drive comes with eight archetypes out of the box. Uh, and later we're going to talk about which ones each of our players picked for this campaign. But um, the important thing is that in addition to the basic moves, each archetype has a, what's called a playbook, which is essentially your character sheet. And that playbook has special moves that only that character can use. Uh, so as an example, there's the infiltrator um, has a move that's called hacking and cracking. And that is a move that you can use to make it easier to kind of get past locks or break into places. So it kind of fits that 
that archetype of the infiltrator. Um, one big thing to understand about impulse drive though, is that things like damage and equipment and even the moves I mentioned, so everything is kind of simplified. And because of that, small changes uh, or like small numbers can really end up making a big difference. So for example, on damage, uh, each player has five hit points and, and that's all you get. Um, and those are called harm. And th that, that number never goes up. You only get five. Woof. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not good. You don't want to get harm. Yeah, you will you will uh, <laughs> run out of that quickly. There's also kind of different consequences for each level of harm that you take. They start off pretty minor. I think the first one is is literally called just a scratch, actually. Um, but then as you start to get hurt more, uh, you also get worse and worse at the stuff that you try to do in the game. By the time you get to level four, you are unconscious and then level five means you're dead. So yeah, it probably sounds pretty harsh, but when you're taking damage, you can actually choose to trade the harm that you're taking for something else that's called stress. Now, stress does not immediately impact you, but if you get too much stress, it can cause a permanent change to your character, which Impulse Drive calls a calamity. Um, Self-care is important, folks. Yeah, no, definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> um, so for every five stress, you get a calamity um, and there are only seven calamities available for each character. But kind of like harm, the calamities, these don't start off too bad. Um, but over time, they kind of get worse and worse. And then if you take that seventh one, um, that means your character either dies or they have to leave the crew. So they're either dead or they're dead to us. Yes, yes. Uh, you actually have to leave the podcast at that point, too. It's, it's, it's pretty rough. So just be prepared for that. I think, like, contractually, we also, one of us has to try to murder you. I'm pretty sure that's also in the rules. Uh, me or the... Yeah. I think I read that somewhere, too. Well, one of us. Like, we took... What did, why did we take a blood oath? Like, what, I cut my hand open. Everyone else did, too. Why did we take... Whatever. Okay. But, like, so, okay. So, in the game, <laughs> in the game, there you have the harms and the stresses and whatnot. How do you actually, like keep yourself from dying like how do you get rid of those how do you heal yourself good question um pr probably critical later um generally speaking uh harm is a lot easier to heal than stress so like some of the lower harms it, it, like they automatically heal um just after the end of a scene so if you have just a scratch mm -hmm. and you're just like okay i finished this fight okay you can uncheck that you're you're healed uh, but some of the the worst stuff, so like let's say you you get a broken bone or something, that you might not be able to heal until the end of a mission, or or you might need something special to do that. But unless you're dead, uh, there's that that fifth level harm. There's generally mm -hmm. speaking some way to to heal your harm. Gotcha. The stress, on the other hand, that's a lot harder to heal. There are some ways to get rid of it, um, like after a mission is over. But there's pretty much always going to be some kind of trade off for that. And the calamities are just permanent. Like you are stuck with those for the rest of the campaign. College loan debt. John, you mentioned this to us during character creation, but we're handling calamities a little different than that, right? Um, we handle the that is how we handle the calamities, but we are like deviating a little bit from the 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 sort of like base calamities in the rulebook. So generally speaking, the impulse drive has seven calamities that are kind of written out in advance for each archetype. Um, so if you just like like picked up the playbook or you printed that off, there are, are seven kind of pre-listed in there. As an example, there's like the roguish character, uh, which is sort of the Han Solo character, which is called the scoundrel. And uh, sort of fittingly, like I think one of the calamities for them is that someone comes looking for like to collect the debt that you owe them. So this is the sort of job of the hut mm -hmm. situation. But for this season to sort of fit with the, like with the podcast, we're using a list of generic calamities from the rule book instead of those pre-written ones. 
That way we can kind of um, shape what happens to fit whatever's going on in the story at that moment. So instead of the, the debt collector one, for example, you might pick the calamity that says an ally or resource is put in peril. And then I'd get to describe um, what exactly happens there as the GM. I mean, so this is important stuff, but I personally don't plan on dying. Yeah. I actually plan on being very successful. Yeah. So how would a player <laughs> like me uh, level up and gain experience? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I mentioned uh, <laughs> that might be tough in some ways because, as I mentioned earlier, one of the main ways you get XP is by uh, rolling a six or less and failing. So, you know, you do get an experience point, which is definitely a, a kind of silver line to that, but that does require... Um, you to fail to get that XP. But the game is also kind of based around the like the various missions that the crew takes on. And each time one of those wraps up, we'll go through a, a list of questions um, that the rules the rule book has that's about how we think the mission went. And then based on your answers to those, you can also get more XP. Um, it is worth noting this is not uh, like DD or other games where it takes like hundreds of thousands of experience to level up. So each time you get five XP, um, you get to take what's called an advance, um, which means that you get to add a new move to your playbook. Uh, you increase your modifier for one of the approaches. Um, so that'll just be happening kind of frequently throughout the game. All right. Um, should we move on to characters now or, or what are we what are we thinking, team? Characters. 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 Oh Please stop. Maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe instead we describe the world a little bit first. Uh, Mo, we can talk about our you're characters off, you're in off context. The crew. You're off the crew. I hear that. I am coming to murder you now. Um, I'm. Uh, no, I... Lauren, Lauren, no. All right. I think. Check I your do closet. Think... I'm already there. <laughs> I, I, I do think what Mo said makes sense. So I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Um, but yeah. So, okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to talk. I'm going to get like five minute story outline and then we're going to go to characters. Mm-hmm. I, I feel some rebellion coming on, but all right. Um, okay. So yeah, our story takes place. It's about like 250 years in the future, but, but let's take it back to our time and then explain how we get there. So by the end of the 21st century, we've, we kind of finally achieved global government, universal health care, just all, everything that Ronald Reagan warned us about. Um, that is what is, has it's, happened in this world. It's the future that liberals want. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We did it. We did it, everyone. Um, <laughs> but within a few decades of that, we are kind of out in the solar system, just mining some asteroids as we do. Doing some Armageddon shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, bl- possibly blowing them up. But then we discover a new form of matter that allows for faster than light travel. So the kind of technical name for this stuff, the, the nerd name is Contramatter, but it has a kind of glow to it. So everybody just calls this stuff Lustra. Um, and so with that Lustra, humanity uh, sets off into our galactic neighborhood here. And after a few years of exploring, uh, we finally discover another planet that supports life and, and even actually has life of its own. There's nothing that like talks to us, but there's life that's kind of like plants or animals here on Earth. And in any case, we call that planet Aventine. So do you want to talk about how like humans actually made it to Aventine and, and sort of what Aventine is like? Um, yeah. So, so back on Earth, I think Aventine is billed as this land of opportunity, a kind of place to create something new. Um, but the reality on Aventine is that life is is pretty hard. So as, as one example, we find out pretty quickly that you can't really grow earth food on Aventine and you actually get sick if you eat Aventine crops. So it's just a lot harder than folks initially thought. But it's worth flagging this that 
Aventine is one of the only places outside of our own solar system where we find Lustra, um, which is the stuff that allows for that interstellar travel. And so even though life on Aventine is, is pretty tough, the Lustra makes it worthwhile and folks do go there. And at, th- at this point in the, sto- like in the timeline, we've kind of made it to the mid-22nd century. So we need to fast forward another um, 100 years or so to get to the mid-23rd century, which is just before the campaign begins. And at that point, two things happen. So first, we discover that near Aventine, there are actually a bunch of other planets that also support life. Um, and also are loaded with Lustra. And we start, uh, sort of, humans start exploring and colonizing this region, and we begin calling um, all of those planets, including Aventine, uh, we call them The Verge. Um, and The Verge is where this campaign is going to take place. Second, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we start talking about Lauren's character in particular, um, but scientists back on Earth discover a way to make Earth crops grow on other planets in The Verge. And this kind of completely changes the relationship between Earth and Aventine. Um, they're, they're no longer like totally dependent on Earth to survive. And so as we start to colonize the rest of the Verge, tensions with Aventine start to grow, uh, and eventually there's civil war. It starts off just over Aventine's independence, but eventually the fighting kind of grows and turns into a question of who's going to control the entirety of the Verge. Several years into the war, however, there's an election on Earth. And in a bit of an upset, the Warhawks uh, lose to the pro-peace party. And so there, there's the new uh, president, Evelyn Lee, um, who takes power and negotiates a peace with Aventine. Um, so under the terms of that treaty, um, Aventine gets its own government and the rest of the Verge gets uh, temporary independence. But w- within a few years, each planet in the Verge will have a vote, um, and they'll have to choose either to rejoin with Earth as part of the kind of unified republic, or become an independent planet. Maybe they'll even align with Aventine at that point. So our story begins a few years after the signing of that treaty, and things are kind of starting to look worse and worse for Earth and the Republic uh, in that upcoming vote in the Verge. And uh, also, to sort of add things on top of that, Evelyn Lee, the president, is facing re-election back here on Earth. Uh, And so as sort of a last-ditch effort, she decides to send a mission to the Verge, which is supposed to help develop the colonies there and, and kind of prove to them that it's worth being a part of the Republic. Um, And so this mission, which is called the Minerva Project, that is what the four of you will be doing at the start of this campaign. So one thing that I think might help uh, flavor this is kind of giving us maybe a little bit of background of like other media that kind of drew on as inspiration. So um, do you have like a few examples of things that might help guiding people and understanding the kind of tone of the world that we're building here. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So like, I'd say like convergence is kind of, I'd put it in the, um, like <laughs> what I call like the mid future science fiction category, um, which kind of has some space opera flavor to it. Um, so if I'm thinking of sort of media that I've uh, consumed that kind of fits this setting, I'd point to the world of the expanse um, or maybe the, the mass effect games. Um, I think those are examples that kind of tonally fit here and inspired me to, to work on this. I'd also, um, I would be remiss to not add in Star Trek, um, which I think is another touchstone, but I I will say Convergence probably has a slightly darker tone than Star Trek, just in that this world's kind of on on the road to that communist utopia. It's not quite there yet. Uh, We don't have like the food replicators or anything. It's also not 1992. It is not, right, correct. This is, uh, I made it a couple (laughs) hundred years in the future just to, to watch out for that, but you know. 
um, hopefully we exceed these expectations. When I'm thinking about kind of, you know, all the things you mentioned, Expanse, Star Trek, Mass Effect, or even like Firefly, the ship is always a big part of the story. It's like the centerpiece in some ways. So can you talk a little bit about the role the ship is going to play? Yeah, so I actually want to like hold off on on getting too into the ship, um, and that's just because at the very start of the campaign, um, you all, the crew, don't begin with the ship. It's going to kind of come up uh, a little bit later as we play. Um, but I will just say it for folks at home, there absolutely is a ship, um, and it is something that we uh, spend a lot of time working on during character creation, just really trying to put um, a little bit of everyone's personalities into that. So stay tuned for the ship, folks. It's definitely gonna gonna come up, and we'll talk about it more when it uh, first appears in the campaign. All right. So now, um, all right. It is now time to talk about characters for sure. Um, Yay! So Lauren, uh, <laughs> you you were the most vocal about this. I graciously volunteered. Yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You wanna, Characters. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, Lauren, you want to yes. talk about Mara a little bit for us? Yeah. Uh, so the character I'll be playing is Mara Belova. Um, so she, her background is she's like the CTO of Genesynth. So like this kind of future agribusiness R&D corporation. Uh, if you're trying to envision her, she's kind of, uh, I guess, just like a generic whitish woman. Um, but like, she's what I'd like to call a hot 40. Um, yeah. So yeah, for, for everyone at home, everyone on the show is hot. I just want, would like have all yeah, listeners to be aware We're of that. all sexy, FYI. And in real life, we're like absolutely smoke yeah, shows, every last one of us. Absolutely. Um, so she, she Mara, uh, grew up kind of under this kind of like dueling influence of her mom and her uncle, uh, two people with these really kind of big belief systems and personalities that um, we're going to be a little more acquainted with as the show goes on. Um, but essentially, they inspired this love of both the beauty beauty and intricacy of nature, uh, but also uh, like the cold, hard efficiency of an optimized algorithm. Oh, yeah. And and Mara's kind of like stuck in the uh, in a world between those those two extremes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So like right now, I think in her CTO role, she's gotten maybe a little too comfortable uh, in like the the systems and structured kind of mentality. So I'm really excited to see, you know, as the story unfolds, how Aventine uh, and the mission kind of challenge each of these worldviews. Yeah. Um. So, OK, like she grew up right. And then all this big love of systems and nature and whatnot. So she goes off to grad school. Um, and near the end of her like doctoral work in bioinformatics, she meets uh, the founder of Genesynth, Nolan Callahan, um, who kind of convinces her to abandon her the kind of life track she thought she was on um, and instead join Genesynth and take on the propagation problem. So essentially trying to discover a way to grow earth crops in the verge. And so, like, this Nolan guy, uh, don't worry, you'll be hearing plenty about him. He's actually the reason why Mara is on the Minerva Project to begin with. Uh, He kind of voluntold her that she was going on the mission as a representative of Genesynth and kind of this technology that uh, they founded that allowed for the colonization of Aventine and uh, The Verge. Awesome. Yeah, so so I think uh, this is maybe a good point to uh, segue into, like, do you want to talk about the playbook you picked for Mara and describe that Yeah, definitely. So it's, like, kind of unsurprising. Like, people might imagine that, like, her playbook would be the intellect. Uh, Very, like, self-evident, but I think she's going to use her her background uh, and experiences and kind of you know, biotechnology, but also kind of the the business world to analyze problems and find 
um, kind of solutions to these problems that will arise. And honestly, like the intellect is kind of like the um, like the sort of Dr. Spock character, just the, the kind of like yeah, expert yeah, yeah. scientist on the crew. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so th- this kind of like falls in a line, right? Uh, you have uh, sh- she has a special move is like kind of the expert, um, which gives her expertise in certain topics that a player can pick from, like a list that um, the the game allows for. Um, that gives the, these special expertise kind of gives her some advantages whenever certain topics come up in the story. Um, so for Mara, knowing her kind of background as the character um, and the kind of world that she exists in, the ones that I chose were um, the broad categories like of engineering technology devices. So that's like one uh, expertise topic, a broad topic. And then the other one are uh, kind of topics related to medicine um, biology and alien physiology. Awesome. So that's Mara. Cool, cool. Yes. All right. Thank you, Lauren. Um, so next yeah. up, Haley, do you want to talk about uh, Leela for us? Yeah. So I'll be playing Leela Malik. And for Leela, we picked the mystic archetype. So in Impulse Drive, the mystic is basically, it's based around being a member of some kind of mystic order. Uh, So if you think like the Jedi Knights from Star Wars, but also that doesn't really make sense since the sort of the world that, you know, that convergence exists in with this kind of, you know, relatively, you know, near future um, or I guess mid future story. And (laughs) and also it's I mean, maybe I'll get flamed for this, but ours is not as fantasy as Star Wars. Right. Like there's there's not quite as much um, of the fantasy element. So we kind of came up with the Sato Institute. So the Sato Institute teaches what's known as indexing, which it's kind of like um, it, it just lets these trained practitioners delve into their subjects' minds. So think like hypnosis, but also a little bit of like Vulcan mind meld. Uh, no, no face touching, though just the kind of concept of like going into someone else's mind. Um, so the Sato Institute is is kind of tight-lipped. They don't really spread around a whole lot of information about how exactly indexing works. And so even like most folks within this world who have not been to the Sato Institute or whatever would not really know a lot about the details of it. They might know that it exists, but they don't really know how it works. Um, so as a as an archetype the mystic a lot of those moves actually rely on the alien approach so as leela kind of gets more into the story and she progresses in her powers uh things are gonna get weird i think uh that's safe to say I, it just struck me now that i didn't get the joke Haley, it, did you call this power indexing because of your love of excel no but that's really good when will Clippy come into play? Oh yeah. Uh, so so that's actually her signature move. Is Clippy pops out and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to see. There's like I think somewhere deep in the rule book, there's like a sidekick mechanic, so we can see if we can uh, incorporate. Oh my those. God. Um, well, okay. Speaking of signature moves, no. actually, do you want to <laughs> do you want to talk about your signature move um, with or without Clippy? No Clippy. So so Leela's (laughs) signature move is called Suggestion, which, um, you know, to quote from the book, it lets her use her power to subtly influence the mind of weak-willed living things. Um, 
so it is kind of similar if you know, I keep referencing D and D, but if you've like, there is a move called suggestion in D and D and it's kind of similar to that. Um, this is kind of related to her indexing skills, but, um, we'll kind of talk more about that, uh, later in the show. Um, so that's like, like, I think a lot of the mechanical side of Leela, do you want to like talk about her backstory and, and, and sort of what, uh, informs her personality a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, Leela is 25 years old. She is the only daughter of her dads, Abhi and Kathan. She grew up in the suburbs of New York City. She is, she's kind of like medium brown skin, dark eyes, uh, and bright blue hair because she's kind of a badass. Um, it's also the future. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the future. Like, I think she can have bright blue hair and... She doesn't have to go to the hair salon every six weeks to get the color touched up. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, oh, it's truly a utopia then. I- exactly. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just made that canon. <laughs> Anything but... is possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so she has bright blue hair, uh, average height, kind of average to slim um, figure, but she is pretty fit, like, you know, not super muscly, but, but she's fit. Okay. Um, in terms of like her background, um, she was kind of, she's kind of an artsy, rebellious kind of type, especially when she was a teenager. So it was actually a bit of a surprise when she ended up um, at the Sato Institute when she was 16 and just started like dove right into like ev- everything that they do. She is kind of like irreverent and she can be intense, but she actually surprisingly turned out to be a really good um practitioner of indexing um so she did well at the institute and um like fast forward to present day she works as uh what's called a conciliator so that just means she uses this kind of indexing technique to mediate and broker compromises between um like different parties that are in conflict so she ended up at the Minerva Project when her mentor, uh, Mickey Adeyemi, sponsored her application to be a part of the program. Um, Leela is kind of there because she's got the skill for resolving conflicts and just kind of in the spirit of trying to build good relationships and, and um, you know, smooth things over um, in the verge. Awesome. Um, cool. Thank you, Haley. Um, all right, Mo, um, tell us a little bit about Nasir. Uh, yeah. Hey, everybody. So I'll be playing Nasir. Uh, Nasir is a very clean cut man uh, in his late 30s, though, thanks to new aging technology, he looks younger. Uh, uh, it, it just just to be clear, you do mean anti-aging technology, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And no, we're not aging him up. No, no. Anti-aging technology uh anti-aging aging for aunties that, thank you the idea i'll be here all week <laughs> oh my god okay the idea here is that 40 is the new 30 uh and so when i say he's in his late 30s he he looks very young he looks something like he's you know he's in, fuckable you'd fuck him right i'd fuck him uh yeah, there we go. He, to that <laughs> how point, did we already get into this <laughs> jesus christ to that effect nasir is pretty classically tall dark and handsome oh my god uh, he's like a tan skinned he's got well-kept black hair black beard uh like green eyes um think like oscar isaac or pedro pascal uh just uh you know good looking dude um but more just importantly to emphasize, he is hot 
Yes, Nasir is very AF. attractive. Um, Mo actually could go. Like, we could go on. We have like three more paragraphs of his hotness. That's fair. Um, more importantly, I can't wait for y'all to see the character art. But more importantly, <laughs> he's a kind, friendly guy. Uh, <laughs> he grew up in Cairo, uh, seeing sort of the wonders of the ancient world, but also like what humanity was really capable of in the era of the Republic when everyone was working together. This is someone who's like a true believer in like the beauty of humanity. And that reflects in his personal beauty. Uh, but <laughs> inspired by his early life um, and sort of that dream of a humanity that had reached across the stars, uh, Nasir became a, an engineer. He became a civil engineer. Uh, and at the very young age of 23, he did the weeks long journey across space and he moved to Aventine. Uh, and he lived on Aventine for uh, a little over a decade. Uh, and during that time on Aventine, he met his husband, Matteo. And they had their son, Salim. Uh, but when Civil War broke out, uh, the three of them were living on Aventine. Uh, and it spelled tragedy for Nasir and his family. And so when it came time to evacuate uh, Republic officials, Nasir, and his, uh, Nasir excuse me, was uh, evacuated back to Earth. Um, when our story begins a few years after that, uh, Nasir is now a famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, uh, political figure. Uh, whose experiences on Aventine helped the current president, Evelyn Lee, uh, win her election of the, uh, as president of the Republic. Do you want to uh, say, like, talk about that for a little bit more and, and sort of uh, how, how Nasir influenced that election? Yeah. Uh, so Nasir uh, became like a Joe the Plumber type figure. Um, he was someone who came back uh, to Earth and was recruited by the Evelyn Lee campaign to tell his story just give an honest recounting of, of, of what he lived through during the war. Uh, and the, the resulting like video advertisement uh, sort of changed the narrative of the war uh, in the Republic and uh, an election that was, that all people were really calling for the war Hawks. Uh, the tide was suddenly turned and like peace became uh, the target. And so uh, it was really pivotal in, in getting Evelyn Lee elected and ending the war um, and that is, it turns out, a controversial take. Uh, and so uh, he, Nasir is very much a figure that is known by most, and most people have strong feelings about Nasir. It, it's not really in the middle. It's, it's, it's always sort of one way or the other. Gotcha. And then you ended up on the, on the Minerva Project. Uh, so what, what, what's Nasir doing there? Yeah. Uh, so Nasir was recruited to the Minerva Project uh, officially because of his expertise in developing settlements in the verge. Uh, he lived as an engineer on Aventine building out infrastructure. And that was, uh, sort of what he's officially been recruited to do. Uh, you know, some people, those who tend to, to like Nasir, uh, see him as a symbol that the mission is supposed to be a peaceful one. Uh, being fully transparent though, uh, many people see him as a political ploy, uh, designed to help the president with her re-election. Uh, yeah. Nasir helped her win once. Uh, and this is very much seen as like a Nasir can help her win again. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, so ter- about Nasir also and, and sort of turning to the the mechanical side and, and Nasir's playbook, um, we did something a little different with your character, Mo. Um, so how about uh, you, you want to talk for a little bit about the icon? Yeah, uh, so mechanically, we designed a custom playbook for Nasir. Uh, We called it the Icon. Um, You know, in sci-fi, there are, you know, a lot of characters who are often, like, known throughout the galaxy. They have sort of fame or infamy. 
uh, you know, they're symbols uh, for rebellions or, you know, they're, they're good people and evil people, you know, this is, uh, sometimes it's just, you know, like smoke and mirrors, wizard of Oz types. Um, but there wasn't really a playbook that matched this idea of like reputation sort of being known. Um, so we built one. Uh, it's more similar to the scoundrel playbook than anything else. Uh, it's a playbook that relies heavily on being a quick thinker and a smooth talker. The playbook is, uh, built around building connections with people, uh, convincing them to take a stand Nasir's honestly, he's a celebrity, right? He's known on Earth and in The Verge because of his role in ending the war. So we focused on sort of that celebrity and that renown when we were designing the playbook. Uh, to that effect, uh, the icon signature move is called Crowd Pleaser. Uh, so it'll help me whenever I seek to incite a crowd in an attempt to create a distraction, generate an obstacle, or aid someone in need. Generally causing chaos. I am an agent of chaos in all aspects of my life, John. Awesome. I want like at least three riots in this. Yeah. Bucket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't actually consider it a successful campaign unless we generate at least three riots. That's Thank fair. You. Thank you. Level set expectations deliver yeah, on them. Yeah. This is good for me to know going into this. So thank you all for that. <laughs> all right. So thank you, uh, Mo, for talking about Nasir. Uh, so last but not least, Mike, um, tell us about Arno. Uh, hey. So I'll be playing Arno Hines a 33-year-old junior officer in the Fleet Special Operations Command, uh, which is part of the Republic Space Fleet. Arno hails from New Finland and comes from a long line of service members of no renown. And uh, um, Nope. Wait, what? No? Like zero? No renowned? Yes, that's that's correct. Um, the most oh, okay. notable trait about, uh, of, uh, about the Heinz family is that for generations, uh, they've served for the minimum amount of time needed to satisfy mm-hmm. the requirements of the Service Member Benefits Act before heading back to their ancestral home of Newfoundland uh, to live out the rest of their quiet, peaceful lives as conservationists and giving boat tours of the area. They are um, sci-fi hobbits, as it were. Awesome. Well, uh, oh, no, no. Oh, 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 man, Mike, you you just got our, halflings, our, our first lawsuit. Damn it. You <laughs> so well. Halflings. It, that, was, that was fair use. Okay, fair use. Hashtag right. fair use. It's fine. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Yeah, if, we, if, if we say it enough times, yeah. it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, so things start to go uh, off script for Arno uh, when the war with Aventine started in the middle of his service and his orders were extended. And a few things happened during the war and Arno just decided to continue serving afterwards. Oh, a few things. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So I guess you mentioned that Arno is uh, part of the... Fleet Special Operations Command, which uh, we call FSOC, because uh, everything has to have an acronym. But um, do you want to? Did you talk a little bit more about like what was Arno doing in FSOC? Like, sort of what was he getting up to during the war? I'm sorry, but that's classified. <laughs> um, but okay, pretty bro. much, uh, but pretty <laughs> much all the stories folks haven't heard about back on Earth. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that Arno was up to during the war. Okay. <laughs> um, um, Arno is viewed as a bit of an oddity. Um, by his family for not coming home after meeting his service uh, requirements, especially given that he fought in a war. Um, and they're generally supportive of his decision, but a bit confused by it. Uh, a lot of calls home asking when I'm going to come home and visit and a lot of delayed answers yeah. and just politely dodging the question. Um, uh, and, and just to be clear, this is Arno and not real life, right? Right. right. <laughs> I'm sure. A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, just to get into a description over here, uh, Arno is uh, tall, slender, bald, clean-shaven, and has very intense blue eyes. Um, his 
kind of unsettling to look at is the way that I would put it and what I wanted to design over but here for this character. Really pushing the boundary here for what like we would consider hot. Well, is it like uh, a Benedict Cumberbatch, like a weird hot? Oh, Yeah, like think of a hot Voldemort, right? That's what we're going for oh, here. No, no, no. Wait a second. Oh, man. <laughs> no, wait a second. This, all right. We saved the most off the rails for the last, I think. And um, yeah. Um, so he's constantly alert uh, and gives off this very passive but intense. Uh, sorry. Or he gives this intense energy even passively and speaks with a friendly demeanor. Um, even as he's asking pointed questions and being a bit of a jackass. It's a bit of a like a mismatch there that I really want to play off. Um, and you know, at the time of this recording, actually Arno doesn't even know that he's a part of the Minerva project and he would not be jazzed about a high profile assignment like this, uh, covert operations are more his speed. Um, but anyways, uh, I'll be playing, uh, the war horse playbook from impulse drive, uh, your classic muscle of the party. Arno's got a pretty cool head on his shoulders and tries to come up with creative solutions uh, to problems. But whenever that fails, he relies on breaking, blowing up and harming things to solve those problems. His, uh, s- oh, yeah. and, he's, uh, he's got to have a cool head because he's bald, right? Right. Very aerodynamic. Anyway, um, <laughs> as, as the as the bald American on, on this call, I uh, <laughs> feel a little targeted here. I mean, you, um, you do. Your ears do get really cold, though. <laughs> Mike, Mike, please go. Mike. Yes, of course. Yes. Um, so uh, his signature move is called uh, the Juggernaut, which at the right moment can make Arno's uh, Arno sort of unstoppable uh, when he charges towards some goal. And he might get banged up a bit, but he's definitely going to make it there. Um, awesome. All right. Thank you, Mike. At this point, uh, we have good news and bad news, folks. The bad news is that now that Mike is done, we have reached the end of our setup episode. Um, oh. Yeah. So, no. <laughs> yeah. Womp, so, womp. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just thank you so much for listening, everyone. I really can't tell you how much that means to us. Um, but I also mentioned some good news. And that good news is uh, episode one of Convergence is already up. Um, in fact, it is the very next episode in our feed. And so, unless you have something else queued up, it's going to play as soon as this episode ends. And that, my friends, is right now. <laughs>